In your Bibles, please, to 1 Peter chapter 2, 1 through 3. First Peter chapter 2 verse 1 Here now the inerrant infallible and inspired word of God Wherefore laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby if so be ye have tasted that the Lord is gracious May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. Mr. John Flavel helps us out today. As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that ye may grow thereby, they, and who he means by they is those who have life in Christ, are not forced on those duties by the frights of conscience and fears of hell, so much as by the natural inclination of the new creature. Two things demonstrate communion with God to be co-natural to the regenerate part called the inner man and the hidden man of the heart. Number one, the restlessness of a gracious soul without it. Canticles 32, the church in the first verse had sought her beloved but found him not. Doth she sit down satisfied in his absence? No, I will rise now and go about the city and the streets and in the broad ways I will seek him whom my soul loveth. And number two, the satisfaction and pleasure, the rest and delight which the soul finds and feels in the enjoyment of communion with God plainly show it to be agreeable to the new nature. Psalm 63, 5, my soul shall be satisfied when I think on thee. And when it is thus, then duties become easy and pleasant to the soul. His commands are not grievous. Well, that's well said. He is talking here uh, from the basis of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. If you'll remember, we, we, we uh, introduced that passage by reaching back one more time to chapter 1, verse 22. Talked about what it means to be born again and how we were born again. That the command in the passage was what? Love one another with a pure heart fervently because we have been born again. If we're going to do that, how are we going to do it? Well, we're going to be do it. We're, we're going to be uh, prosecuting that duty as those who are born again by laying aside malice, guile, hypocrisies, envies, evil speakings. So he, he continues on in chapter two. Right? We're we're hearing the continuity between chapters one and two, and then we have another imperative as newborn babes desire. That's the next imperative. Love one another with a pure heart fervently and desire the pure milk of the word. With regard to the statements that are spoken of that are descriptive about us being born again and milk or the word being like milk and so on, those are not commands. Those are simply descriptors to assist us to understand how we, how we make use of and respond and react and, and live according to to these things okay so last couple of times we looked at what it means to be newborn babes and we said it's not a correction although sometimes it is in scripture 
but not here. And then last week we also looked at milk. And, and sometimes milk will be set forth as a corrective, like in Hebrews chapter 5, right? Hebrews chapter 5, you are such as need milk rather than you ought to be teachers. There's a problem there, right? Or to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul will say, I fed you with milk, not meat, because you couldn't bear it. You're carnal. So in those instances, milk is a correction, but not here. Being children and desiring milk, those here are said to be the concomitants of what it means to be born again. Those go hand in glove with what it means to be born again. We are born again as children, except you be converted, become as little children. You will not enter into the kingdom of God. There is a way, and we talked through that. We'll not take the time to rehearse it again, but we talked through uh, godly ways of being children, that when the Lord would commend the faithful as children, he has something in mind. Then when he would correct them as children, he has something else in mind. Okay, so we want to make sure that when we see the word child or newborn babe, and when we see the word milk, that we're putting it in its proper context here and not simply washing over that because words what mean what they mean in context, right? A proper word study involves three different things. Pastor, this is too difficult. I can't do it. Well, that's why you have pastors and teachers, because we are concerned about these things. The first thing we learn about a word is its etymology. We want to learn where it came from, how it was coined originally, and why. Secondly, what modifications have been made? We have what we call in highfalutin the- theological terms a diachronic use of Scripture, how it, how, it, how it morphs through time, how it was used in one way when it was first coined, and how it has moved along that continuum of time and how it's used differently now. We know about this as King James Version readers. Sometimes we'll come across the word prevent in our reading. What does prevent mean? Well, in modern English, it means to stop something, to stand in its way, right? To keep it from obtaining. But prevent in 17th century English meant to go before. And you can see how that has changed over time, right? And its etymology is to come before. Well, to come before can mean to stop something, or it can mean to move it along, depending on the context, right? And then we have the third, and I just gave it away, it's context, right? So, so we want to see how a word is coined. We want to see what changes are made over time. But then when we come to it in its In its meaning, we want to see how it's used in its immediate context. And then we want to consider contextually what I call the concentric circles of context. Right? Sometimes a word is going to mean something in its context here. For instance, calling the people of God children, it's going to be different from a broader context, isn't it? Okay, so... You understand that when you come to a word study, you can't content yourself simply with, a, with an etymological study. Where do the words come from that make up this word? Right? Oh, well, that happens all the time, right? Makrothumia. What does makrothumia mean? 
mean? Well, it's a word that means patience in Scripture. It comes from two, uh, two Greek words. Makro, right? That's uh, a long way away. And thumos, anger. So your anger is a long way away. Okay, well, you can see how it started there, right? How the word patience starts like that. But what about the word butterfly? How does that relate to the animal? And the answer is, I don't know. I don't know how it got there. Okay, so etymological studies may not be exactly what we're looking for, right? Diachronic studies may not be exactly what we're looking for, but we put the capstone on that with our contextual studies. And here, the word children and the word milk, those words are, are, are commendatory. They're things that should draw us to those things, not take us away from them. We want to be children who desire the sincere milk of the word. Last week also we talked about the, the, um, uh, the source of milk. And we used the illustration a little bit, um, perhaps beyond the bounds that is exactly in the text, but certainly implied there. <coughs> and we let one of our theologians help us with the quotation, where he said that, you know, we, we understand the context between a baby and its milk. What's the context? What's the connection? It's, milk just doesn't drip out of the ceiling. It comes from somewhere. Right? It comes from mama. And so we put that in the context of that. Where, does the, where is that milk to be found? Right? Well, we, we want to we recognize that that milk is found in the church. And we, we looked at that, and we'll look at that again uh, to bring that point home. Because the church is often presented as a mother with the, quote, milk of her consolations. That's the milk we should desire. And so it's not apart from the church. It's not that here's your, here's your, um, here's your status of baby and here's the pure milk of the word. And that's all you need. You don't need anything. Well, no, no. What is a baby going to do with a pan of milk next to it? Not much. So there's a context there. There's a connection there. And then the last thing that we talked about last week was the sincere or pure milk of the word. That it has to be unmixed, right? No formula. No formula, no water, nothing else. It is that pure milk of the word that we may grow thereby. What's the command, however? And this is where I want to begin uh, this week. Where, what is the command? The command is desire the sincere milk of the word. So I want to unpack the word desire Pastor, we all know what desire means. You don't need to unpack that word. Well, what I mean by saying I want to unpack it is I want to, I want to present to us how we must desire it. How should we desire the sincere milk of the word? Let's begin by looking at Job's example in Job chapter 23. Begin our reading in verse 8. <clears throat> Behold, I go forward, but he is not there, and backward, but I cannot perceive him. 
on the left hand where he doth work, but I cannot behold him. He hideth himself on the right hand that I cannot see him. But he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot hath held his steps. His way have I kept and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. But he is in one mind and who can turn him? And what his soul desireth, even that he doeth. For he performeth the thing that, that is appointed for me, and many such things are with him. Therefore am I troubled at his presence when I consider I am afraid of him. For God maketh my heart soft, and the Almighty troubleth me. Because I was not cut off before the darkness, neither hath he covered the darkness from my face. Well, this is Job in one of his lower points. Yet, even in that lower point, what do we see? We see that, that seed of faith that remains with him. We see that he knows that he, he can faithfully, in, in faith, present his case before God. And when he is tried by God, he will come out as gold. This is not presumption on Job's part here. Some commentators would be want to say that it is. But I think what Job is, is speaking of here is that I, although I may not understand what God is doing with me in his providence right now, I know that I will continue to praise him. I know that I will continue to follow him. I know that I will not turn away from him. I know he will keep me as well. What is the sign of that keeping? What is the... What is the characteristic of that keeping? Notice what Job says. And this, remember that Job, although it was written sometime around the time of the judges or maybe a little bit later than that, that it is of a time of the patriarchs, the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so these words might be a little bit more startling, being the very words that come out of Job's mouth. My foot, verse 11, hath, hath held his steps... His way have I kept and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. This, this is what desiring the sincere milk of the word looks like. More than my necessary food or my daily appointed portion. Desire the sincere milk of the word. How shall we desire it, Peter? Tell us. Let's get some advice from Job. More than our necessary portion. Why? Well, you know the answer. Because our necessary portion will only sustain us for that day. But the word of the Lord, desiring that, that will sustain us. So more than my necessary food. Psalm 119 is next, 103. You knew we were eventually going to end up in Psalm 119, didn't you? That's because you're good Bible scholars. 
103. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Well, let's first of all unpack, uh, do away with, if you will, some of the bad rap that honey has gotten lately. You know, there are people that won't use honey today. <coughs> Certain people you don't ever want to give honey to and all of that stuff. Okay, fine. In the day of nutritional science, there may be times where we want to look wisely at honey. I get that. Okay. But that's not what David has in mind here. Not even close. Honey was that natural thing that they used to sweeten everything. It made everything better. I think that Mary Poppins was wrong. I think it's a spoonful of honey that makes the medicine go down. Not a spoonful of sugar. Right? Honey sweetens everything. And we use honey metaphorically, don't we? I read a story once about a, a man who went to visit a lady in his church. She was a poor widow. She asked him if he wanted a cup of tea. And he said yes. And so she went, went, she went to her cupboard and she pulled the, the only cup that she had in her cupboard off of that shelf. And she had one pot in her cupboard and she made some water. She heated it up. She didn't make water. She heated it up. Sorry, misspoke there. And she had a little, a, a little homemade bag that she had made out of cloth and she put a little bit of tea in it. And she put it in the cup and she strained it out and steeped it for him. And, and she gave him the cup. And his comment on that was, you might be wondering how the tea was. She honeyed that tea up with so much love and care that it was the best cup I ever had. We use that word honey like that, don't we? That's how David means it here. Thy words, they're sweeter than honey to my mouth. Let's look at another verse. Let's look at Psalm 19. Not 119, but 19. And keep your finger in 119 if you haven't taken it out there because we'll go back there in a moment. So, in verse 7, we have the law, the testimony. Uh, in verse 8, the statutes, the commandment. In verse 9, the fear, the judgments. All of these things pertain to the word of the Lord. And notice that they are all uh, wonderfully set in this setting for us. Uh, the, the adjectives that are used are perfect, sure, um, rejoicing, right, pure, clean, enduring, true, righteous, all those things. You know, when you consider it like that, instead of, you know, stack up the, the, the substances on one side, stack up the adjectives on the other, and take a look at what, what David is doing here, you know. But then he has 
this statement in verse 10, which is only naturally to be inferred from 7 through 9. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the droppings of the honeycomb, is how some translations have it. So we have honey once again here, but we have gold also. I've said this to you before. It's been a few years. Maybe you don't remember. I remembered as I was thinking about this passage saying this one time, but I don't remember if you remember. (laughs) So I want to say it again. If I told you that when you went home today from church and turned on your faucet, that liquid gold was going to run out of the faucet, and all you had to do was put a pan underneath it, or several, to be set in this world for the rest of your lives, and your children's lives, and so on. I dare say that after we had the benediction, that our population in this building would be reduced significantly. Right? If you could get gold from your faucet, Now, make no mistake, having clean water come out of the faucet is wealth beyond what many people in the world have ever enjoyed and will ever enjoy, even today. But it's not gold, is it? No, it's not gold. David uses gold here because he knows how precious it is in the eyes of mankind. And he will say that the that the the law of the Lord, the statutes, the judgments, and so on of the Lord are more precious than gold. They're more to be desired than gold. We learned that already, didn't we, from Peter even. What did Peter tell us? Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, such as gold or silver, from your vain conversation received by tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Beloved, let's put gold in its proper place. Right? Let's put honey in its proper place. They are certainly desiderata, as the Latinists would say. Things to be desired. David doesn't say they're not to be desired. He simply says that the word is more to be desired than those things. And so we must search our heart. We must search our own hearts to know whether or not that kind of desire obtains in our own lives. Now we can turn back to Psalm 119, and we'll see this same principle. This is one of the reasons some would say that David wrote Psalm 119, because it has such Davidic concepts in it. Verse 127, Therefore I love thy commandments above gold, yea, Above fine gold. And then 72. The law of thy mouth is better unto me. Than thousands of gold and silver. This afternoon we have slated to read Deuteronomy chapter 13. We'll look at that passage in full, but for right now, I'd like you to focus on 6 through 11 with me. And we'll look at one more thing about the Word of God. 
If thy brother, the son of thy mother, or thy son, or thy daughter, or the wife of thy bosom, or thy friend, which is as thine own soul, entice thee secretly, saying, Let us go and serve other gods which thou hast not known, thou nor thy fathers. Namely, of the gods of the people which are round about you, nigh unto thee, or far off from thee, from the one end of the earth, even unto the other end of the earth, thou shalt not consent unto him, nor hearken unto him, neither shall thine eye pity him, neither shalt thou spare, neither shalt thou conceal him, but thou shalt surely kill him. Thine hand shall be first upon him to put to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, and thou shalt stone him with stones that he die, because he hath sought to thrust thee away from the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And all Israel shall hear and fear and shall do no more any such wickedness as this among you. Well, it's, it, it, it's an inference. It's an implication. We said more than our daily food. We said more than honey. We said more than gold. Now we say more than our closest relations. We must love the word of God. Jesus will say pretty much the same thing when he says, he who hears the word of God and keeps it, that is my mother and my father and my sister and my brother. How much shall we desire it? That much. Next question. Do we understand the withering away of our souls without it? Do we understand how our souls wither away apart from the word of God? Turn with me to Psalm 74. (coughs) 1 through 11. O God, why hast thou cast us off forever? Why does thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? Remember thy congregation, which thou hast purchased of old, the rod of thine inheritance, which thou hast redeemed, this Mount Zion, wherein thou hast dwelt. Lift up thy feet unto the perpetual desolations, even all that the enemy hath done wickedly, In the sanctuary, thine enemies roar in the midst of thy congregations. They set up their ensigns for signs. A man was famous as he had lifted up axes upon the thick trees, but now they break down the carved work thereof at once with axes and hammers. They have cast fire into thy sanctuary. They have defiled by casting down the dwelling place of thy name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them together. They have burned up all the synagogues of God in the land. We see not our signs. There is no more any prophet, neither is there among us any that knoweth how long, O God, how long shall the adversary reproach? Shall the enemy blaspheme thy name forever? Why withdrawest thy hand, uh, thou thy hand, even thy right hand? Pluck it out of thy bosom, for God is my king of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth this is one of many passages that we could have chosen to show this point listen to this plaintive cry in the midst of having churches torn down in the land 
the word of God being taken down, the temple of God and its pillars being chopped to the ground. Listen to what the psalmist writes here. Asaph, what does he say? We see not our signs. There is no prophet of God in the land. Well, we could have turned to many passages to show that when the Lord takes away his word, our souls wither and dry up. Do they not? Let's go to the locus classicus. That is the classic location in the Bible that, that, that teaches that truth to us in Amos chapter 8. You'll know this passage as soon as you hear it. A little bit of history up to this point. The Lord had spoken and spoken and spoken. He sent judgments and prophets to interpret those judgments. He sent um, temporal judgments and prophets to interpret them. Remember what he said back in chapter 3? Right? The Lord has roared in the city. But I've told what I'm doing to my prophets. Who can but prophesy is how Amos will say at that point. Right? The Lord has sent those judgments and the interpretation of them. This is one of those great passages of scripture when you turn to Second Chronicles 18. It's time for Ahab to die in the Lord's judgment. It's time for him to come down. And so the Lord muses out loud, if you will, right? That's obviously a condescension on his part. Who shall entice Ahab that he will go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? One spirit says this, another spirit says that. One spirit says, I know, here's what I'll do. I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of all of Ahab's prophets. The Lord says, you go and do that. Can I ask you this question? Why do we know that that went on? Because the Lord revealed it to Micaiah. Not only did the Lord send a lying spirit in the mouth of Ahab's prophets, he also sent his spirit into the mouth of Micaiah the prophet. To tell Ahab and Jehoshaphat the truth. Isn't that true? That's, that's how we know. We know because the Lord doesn't do anything like that without revealing to his prophets what he will do. In every age of the church, beloved, when temporal judgments fall, the Lord has not been silent. The Lord has raised up prophets, apostles, evangelists, pastors, teachers, to teach the people of God from the word of God what he is doing. And when, after long and patient preaching of the good word of God, the people yet stop their ears, the Lord threatens this one final judgment. Amos chapter 8, verse 11. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water. And we might pause here for a minute and say, the Lord is saying, I already did that. And you didn't hear. I already sent a famine of bread. I already sent a famine of water. And I sent my prophets. And you didn't hear. And so this final motion then, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing 
the words of the Lord, and they shall wander from sea to sea and from north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord and shall not find it. In that day shall the fair virgins and young men faint for thirst. They that swear by the sin of Samaria that say, Thy God, O Dan, liveth, and the manner of Beersheba liveth, even they shall fall and never rise up again. Well, that is a famine we never want. The, the word of God and the will of God, the will of Christ's Father, was also for him more important than his daily food. We read of that, don't we, in John 4, 32 through 34, where he's sitting at the, at the well of Jacob talking to the woman, and, they, and they, they have gone in, his apostles have gone in to get some food, and they've come back. And they say to him, Master, eat. And he says, I have food you don't know of. And they immediately, who gave him something to eat? It's a detective agency, right? Who gave him something to eat? My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Who shall desire it? We've seen that we must desire it. How we must desire it. We've seen the withering away of our souls without it. We've seen that it was in the place of Christ's daily food for him. But shall we say, who shall desire it? Who? In Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 and 19, we hear that civil leaders should desire it. That the king is to write out a copy of the law or have it written out by his scribes and read in it every day of his reign. That he may know the Lord the God of his fathers, he may know how to prosecute his particular calling. And in Acts chapter 13 and verse 7, there's a guy named Sergius Paulus on, on an island in Paul's first missionary journey. And he calls for Paul and Barnabas. And why did he call for them? Acts 13, what is the verse? 7, you can take it down and look it up later. Because he wanted to hear the word of God. A civil leader should want to hear the word of God. A civil leader needs the pure milk of the word. Parents need the pure milk of the word. Proverbs 1 verse 8. I'll tell you why they need it. Or Solomon will tell us why, we, why parents need it. My son... Hear the instruction of thy father and forsake not the law of thy mother for they shall be an ornament of grace under thy head and chains about thy neck. Fathers and mothers need the word of God and a continual feasting upon it that they might also make that known to their children. We all know about those animals that go out and search for their children and bring food back to the nest and they bring it back to them through processes that it's not comfortable for us to talk about. But we know that mothers and fathers need the word that they may also teach their children with it. Right? We've been reading in Deuteronomy chapters 6 and chapter 11 tell us that explicitly without fear of contradiction. Our passage speaks to all kinds of people who have known the grace of the Lord 
1 Peter, that all of us should, what? Desire the sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby. Everyone who claims the name of Christ should never be overfull with regard to the scripture. No thanks. I've had enough word today, pastor. Uh, the simple Psalm 119, verse 130, very interestingly, you say, oh, I can't take much of the word of God. I'm simple-minded, really. The entrance of thy words giveth light, it giveth understanding to the simple. The simple are particularly mentioned with regard to the word of God and their need of it. Notice what Jeremiah will say in Jeremiah chapter 15. In verse 16, thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts. Well, let's talk about what Jeremiah means there for a moment. Certainly he has that desire that we've been talking about. That's evident in the passage. But notice there's that little word for. That's a translation of the Hebrew word key, which means sometimes because or upon the foundation of. Upon what foundation? How is it that the, that the word of the Lord, the words of the Lord, are the joy and rejoicing of Jeremiah's heart? How is it? Why is it? Because he is called by the name of God. And so, beloved, everyone who is called by the name of God should find that same joy and rejoicing with regard to the word of the Lord. But what does it mean to be called by the name of the Lord? Pastor, what about our little ones? Are they not called by the name of the Lord? Are not all professors of the true religion called? By the name of the Lord? Do they not have the name of the Lord placed upon their foreheads? And so for every one of you, beloved, even if you may from time to time because of besetting sin or weakness doubt of your regeneration, you are yet called by the name of the Lord and the word of God is for you. And it is for you for your regeneration and your growth. Yes, it is for us. So we've seen what kind of desire, how our souls wither without it, who shall desire it, and when shall we desire it? When? <laughs> you know the answers to these questions, but oh, it's good to be refreshed in them, isn't it? Psalm 119, once again. Psalm 119 we begin with verse 20. My soul breaketh for the longing that it hath unto thy judgments at all times. In every circumstance, in every confrontation, in every providence, whether we Lie down or rise up or walk by the way is how it's put in Deuteronomy 6 and 11. So at all times, Psalm 63, 
Verse 1, O God, thou art my God, early will I seek thee. My soul thirsteth for thee, my flesh longeth for thee in a dry and thirsty land where no water is to see thy power and thy glory so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. There it is. Early. And whenever we hear the word early in scripture, what does it mean? Oh, my alarm went off. It is early. It doesn't mean that at all. It means that there's a particular rising up of our affections and diligence after whatever it is that we get up early to do. The Bible uses the word early often in the way to show diligence and eagerness toward duties that God has given to us. And so the psalmist writes, Early will I seek thee to see thy power and glory so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. Not just at church, not just there, but as he has seen the Lord in the sanctuary. That is, by means of his word. By means of the teaching and preaching that he has heard. And then also back to Psalm, well here we are in Psalm 63, let's stay here for a moment. 63 verse 6. When I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. And then we have the same thing, don't we, in Psalm 119, verse 148. Mine eyes prevent the night watches that I might meditate in thy word. There's that word prevent we talked about earlier, right? (coughs) Not prevent in the way that they stop up or keep from happening. What is a night watch? The Hebrews had three night watches. They divided the night into three sections. There were three watches in the night. Sometimes they would be up all night. That would be all three watches. Sometimes they would do the first watch, sometimes the second watch, sometimes the third watch. And those watches were used in a military fashion, but they were also used in a devotional fashion. It was the same time frames, in other words. And so, as those watches go before me, right? Here I am then, meditating upon the word. So when? Early? All times? Nighttime? When are we to desire it? So we've answered the questions, haven't we? How shall we desire it? Who must desire it? What happens if we don't have it? How did Christ desire it? Who shall desire it? And when shall we desire it? And the Bible is very clear that our desire for this sincere milk of the word is to outstrip all other desires at all other times. It is indeed to be more important to us than our daily food. John Brown says it this way. Desire it as newborn babes. Show that you cannot do without it. That you must have it. That nothing will do as its substitute. That you relish it. That you are satisfied with it. That you are never weary of it. That you return to it again and again with unabated, ever-increasing delight. Or can I just make it very simple and say it this way? As newborn babes desire milk. When do they desire it? Are they on a schedule? During the watches of the night? Early? At all times? And so you see the illustration and how it works out. 
some of you are catching that. That's good. Why milk then? And let's close with this. Why is it described as milk? First of all, because it is consistent with your birth. You are born of your mother and you are fed by her as well. It is consistent with your birth. And it is indeed in that ordinary providence of God, we say it confessionally, don't we? That outside the church there's no ordinary possibility of salvation, right? In that ordinary providence of God where the people of God are going to hear the message of the gospel by which they are born again by that word of God, as Peter said in 122 through 25, and then they're going to consistently drink from that same fountain in order to grow. So why milk? Because it is consistent. As babies are born of their mother, they are nourished by their mother. Second, it is that which is most suited to your soul. That which is most suited to your soul. Now I know that we, we use the term soul food these days. But that's not what we're talking about here. This is true soul food. Right? It's not southern cooking we're talking about. We're talking about food for your soul. What do you need in your soul? You need light. You need wisdom. You need direction. The Bible provides all of that. We could, and we're not going to, but we could have taken this food for your soul concept and run that out scripturally and preach two or three sermons on that. How specifically suited for your soul the word of God is. Such that you don't want any substitutes. You don't want any other paradigm of knowledge rising up and displacing your true soul food. Like milk is suited to babies. Now I know our, our statement of uh, what we would call technology and our own human learning, that that ebbs and flows. Sometimes it's big and sometimes it's small. Sometimes the greatest human learning on the face of the earth looks like the foolishness that it is. And other times it sounds pretty astute. It's going to go back and forth. It's going to go up and down. We get that, don't we? Okay. All right, but let's remember this. That there have been times in this world when people have said, no, something is better for babies than mother's milk. And then there have been other times in this world where people have said, no, there is nothing that is better than mother's milk for babies, right? And we've seen that come and go. When, when I was a baby, um, my mother didn't, didn't nurse me because she was told it was better for her not to. I'm sad result of that. Okay. But we have no such confusion about this with regard to the word of God. This is the food that is particularly suited to your soul. One little example that is, you know, more scientific. One of the things that we learn about babies or that we know about babies is that they, they need to grow. They need to put on weight right away. Well, you know what milk does? It, it, it puts fat and sweet together. You know, like donuts. You put fat and sweet together and you put that in somebody's body, they're going to put on weight. That's what babies need. Think of the Bible, ready, as the donuts, as that that will cause you to grow and to expand and to fill up space 
spiritually. Because that's what it is. It's exactly what you need for your soul. That's why milk is chosen by Peter. Okay? Third, no other thing can give the same consolation. We spoke of this before, didn't we? No other thing can give the same consolation. Turn with me to Isaiah 49 for a moment. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 13. Sing, O heavens, and be joyful, O earth, and break forth into singing, O mountains, for the Lord hath comforted his people and will have mercy upon his afflicted. But Zion said, The Lord hath forsaken me, and my Lord hath forgotten me. Can a woman forget her sucking child that she should not have compassion on the son of her womb? Yea, they may forget, but I will not forget thee. Behold, I have graven thee, Upon the palms of my hands, thy walls are continually before me. Thy children shall make haste, thy destroyers, and they that made thee waste shall go forth of thee. The Lord says, as a mother can't forget her child, so I can't forget you. I will feed you. I will care for you. This is what you need. Nothing else can be of the same consolation. Jeremiah 3, verse 12. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, thou backsliding Israel, saith the Lord, and I will not cause mine anger to fall upon you, for I am merciful, saith the Lord, and will not keep anger forever. Only acknowledge thine iniquity, that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God, and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree, and ye have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will take you, one of a city, two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you pastors according to mine heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. This is a promise, beloved. <coughs> As milk also binds the affections of the child to the mother, so the milk of the word binds our affections to the Lord. Nothing else then compares with the efficacy of this source. And we'll close with Isaiah 66. Verse 10. Rejoice ye with Jerusalem, and be glad with her, all ye that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all ye that mourn for her, that ye may suck and be satisfied with the breasts of her consolations, that ye may milk out and be delighted with the abundance of her glory. For thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the Gentiles like a flowing stream. Then shall ye suck, ye shall be borne upon her sides, and be dandled upon her knees. As one whom his mother comforteth, so will I comfort you, and ye shall be comforted in Jerusalem. And when ye see this, your heart shall rejoice, and your bones shall flourish like an herb. And the hand of the Lord shall be known 
toward his servants and his indignation toward his enemies. I have a quotation for you to read at the end here that is a fitting epilogue to our, to our sermon today. It's an old story, but it is one that never gets old. Mr. John Rogers was preaching on the subject of the scriptures. There was a young man in his congregation named Thomas Goodwin. You may have heard that name. An independent, one of the Westminster divines. And in that sermon he falls into an expostulation with the people about the neglect of their Bible. He personates God to the people, telling them, Well, I have trusted you so long with my Bible, you have slighted it. It lies in such and such houses all covered with dust and cobwebs. You care not to listen to it. Do you use my Bible so? Well, you shall have my Bible no longer. And he takes up the Bible from his cushion and seemed as if he were going away with it, carrying it away from them. But immediately turns again and personates the people to God. He falls down on his knees and cries and pleads most earnestly, Lord, whatever thou dost to us, take not thy Bible from us. Kill our children, burn our houses, destroy our goods. Only spare us thy Bible, only take not away thy Bible. Then he personates God again to the people, Say you so? Well, I will try you a while longer. And here is my Bible for you. I will see how you will use it. Whether you will love it more, observe it more, practice it more, and live more according to it. By these actions, as Dr. Goodwin relates it, he had put all the congregation into such a strange posture that the place was a mere bokeem, that is, a place of weeping. The people generally deluged with their own tears. And he told me that he himself, when he got out to mount his horse, he was fain to hang upon its neck for a quarter of an hour, weeping before he had power to mount. So strange an impression was there upon him and generally upon the people, having been expostulated with for their neglect of the Bible. Well, it's an old story. Most of you have heard it before. Maybe some of you, this is the first time. But it never gets old, does it, in its teaching? How is it that a people so steeped with Scripture, having the Scripture so available to us, can be in some sense so ignorant of it. We don't want that famine of the word of God. Asaph speaks of that in Psalm 73. When he puts his eyes on the world and the rich around him. And he loses sight of the, of the Bible. Of what God says in his word. He speaks about the wicked rich as if they have nothing to worry about. No bands in their death. I thought I would see them cursed. But no, it's not that way. My eyes have seen that it's blessed. Surely, he will say, I've cleansed my own hands in vain. If I should speak thus, I should offend against the generation of thy children, he says. 
till I went to the sanctuary of God and I saw their latter end. Oh, it was the Bible and the teaching from the word of God that changed Asaph's heart. And eventually he will say, I was as a beast before thee. Beloved, if we neglect the Bible, if we don't partake regularly, often, at night, early, at all times, every one of us, copiously, desiring it more than our daily food, our thinking will be reduced to beast thought. There will be a famine, not of bread, not of water, but of the hearing of the word of the Lord. Take it up, beloved. Memorize it. I recognize I'm preaching to people that already do this, but I, I want you, like the Apostle Paul said to the Thessalonians, I know you do this, but do it more and more. Increase in love. Increase your grip on the Word of God. Memorize it. Meditate upon it. Use it morning, noon, and night. In the middle of the night. Use it. Let's stand and call upon the Lord. Our dear Heavenly Father, as we close the sermon with these requests, we ask, hear us for Christ Jesus' sake. O Lord, we who have thy good word, so common among us, are at special temptation to think less of it rather than more. We confess. We confess also that we who have read thy word over and again are tempted to think we've already read it. And we do not take those fresh drafts from its depths. O Lord, we who have thy word in a competent translation are also sometimes tempted with regard to the translation itself and its accuracy. And we doubt thy good providence in it. Forgive us. Lord, we confess that having thy word, uh, we often do not give our hearts to it. We read it. Our eyes pass over the words without them passing through our affections and our hearts, without us taking them in and digesting them, planting that seed that it should grow up faithfully. Certainly, Lord, we might, we might say that we need much improvement in our use of thy word. Help us not to compare ourselves to others, but to compare ourselves with that standard what we have seen today. Teach us, Lord, to desire it as babies desire milk. To have that same blessed urgency, that same blessed importunity, that same blessed consolation. And we thank thee, Lord, that thou hast given thy word 
that thou hast, as thou didst say in the prophet Isaiah, been that nursing, like that nursing mother to us that, that cannot say no, will not say no. So, Lord, we pray, draw us near thy bosom. Speak to us. And, Lord, we pray, guide our affections to have no competitors to that speaking. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be